Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, um, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name's Scott Burns. Um, I'm your moderator for today. Uh, as the club continues to host virtual events, they are grateful for the continued support of their members and donors. We hope you will consider making a donation online or text DONATE to 415-329-4231. It's my pleasure to introduce Governor Andrew Cuomo, author of American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. Governor Cuomo has served as the 56th governor of New York since 2011. When COVID-19 besieged the United States, New York emerged as the epicenter of the pandemic that threatened the lives and livelihoods of millions of people. As the death toll rose and infection rates spiked, Governor Cuomo and his team worked tirelessly to address the threat and implement a game plan to fat, flatten the curve. Through science, ingenuity, compassion, and tremendous leadership, they were able to protect and save countless lives. Seven months later, we are still dealing with this pandemic and look forward to hearing Governor Cuomo share what he has learned during this challenging time. Um, just a reminder that we're gonna be taking questions at the end in about an hour, a little less. So please submit those in the chat box um, <clears throat> on your screen. Governor Cuomo, welcome. Good to be with you, thank you very much. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club. It's very kind of you to have me. And uh, Scott Burns, thank you for doing this. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, especially with your uh, experience and expertise, uh, it really is a pleasure. Thanks. So I'm pretty sure the reason that they wanted me here today um, to talk about this was about 10 years ago, I started doing research on a film called Contagion. Um, and I spent a lot of time talking to epidemiologists, virologists, people in, in public health, um, about what the likelihood of, of a global pandemic might be and how that might play itself out. Um, I understand you've probably seen that movie a few times at this point. Um, the one thing that I, I can say is that if I had gone into Warner Brothers and pitched them the movie and then said, but the interesting thing in the movie is that the federal government abandons all 50 states and, and decides that science isn't really uh, the way to adjudicate the right public policy decisions, I think I probably would have been, been sent home to come up with a new third act. You know, Scott, uh, look, I think you're right about that. But I, I think the overall, what I'm trying to talk about in my book is uh, we've been at this for seven months uh, we are still in the midst of it, fall surge, and then we have the winter, and then we have the vaccines. Let's at least learn from what we've gone through over the past seven months, right? Uh, the movie Contagion to me is remarkable. It is remarkable. Uh, I want people to read the book. I also want people to watch the movie Contagion again uh, if they haven't. Contagion, that movie, 2011, uh, is frightening, uh, a frightening prediction and mirror of what happened here in COVID, which makes the point that, yes, let's learn the lessons within the seven months, but also 
let's realize we didn't learn the lessons over the past 20 years. Uh, 20 years, we had SARS 20 years ago. Uh, Ebola, dengue, swine flu, uh, H1N1, MERS, uh, 2012, uh, there were many, many warning signs of this virus. And the contagion as a parallel for this uh, is, is so frightening, frankly, as a predictor of what was going to happen. Uh, now, it's, it's part your brilliance as the writer, and it's part your research speaking to inform people, right? Uh, the, in, in Contagion, the movie comes from a, what they call a wet market, a poultry market in China. A bat um, infects a pig, and the pig then is the vehicle for the zootropic virus, which then affects people. That's what happened with SARS. That's what happened with MERS. The COVID virus they found in bats in China, which is where COVID came from, uh, which was in contagion. Uh, the virus in your movie goes from China to the United States in just a couple of days. Uh, we were totally blind to that fact here. We believed that the virus was in China and the virus stayed in China for months, right? Uh, which was just uh, uh, incredibly ignorant. Um, so it's, this was entirely predictable uh, for the past years. And then again, within these past seven months, it's been entirely predictable what was going to happen. And we're still in the midst of this movie. And I guarantee you, we're going to repeat the same mistakes that we've made from the beginning of COVID? Um, I suspect you're right. I think, you know, whenever I've been asked about the movie and and how it differs from reality, you know, the, the virus that we sort of cobbled together from two existing viruses when we were doing the film um, was a virus that in some respects was more deadly. Um, but I think what's interesting about what's happening right now is that this virus has gone as a tracer bullet through some larger societal problems that you know we didn't take on and and early on in your book if i can if i can read a paragraph here um you say i knew this country was in trouble when covid hit it was divided and vulnerable making it weak a serious threat that was inevitable and when it came we did not have the capacity to handle it the only way to defeat the virus is for united societal response where we all agree to protect one another. Um, it's very simple, but it's very elegantly put. And I think one of the lessons that I learned in doing research for the movie was that the virus, you know, doesn't really care if you're in a red state or a blue state. Um, you know, it's just looking for more humans to infect. Can you, can you speak to how that could have been a political boon um, to, the, to, to what's going on in the country right now, how that crisis could have been used differently? Yeah. You know, Scott, the uh, virus, 
uh, at the end of the day, is an incredibly simple organism, right? It just uh, it wants to recreate itself. Uh, and we know how to deal with viruses. Uh, and the virus, I say, is a metaphor for really where this country is. The virus, human body is attacked by dozens of viruses every day. Uh, the, Amer- the human body gets into trouble when the immune system is weak. Uh, and that's when it can't fight off the virus. The American body politic immune system is weak. Uh, why is it weak? We are divided more so than ever before. Um, we're not unified. We're not unified about anything. We find things to divide ourselves over. Uh, and we have an incompetent government. Now, which comes first, a divided country or an incompetent government? I'm not sure. But there definitely is a synergistic connection between the two. Uh, You have a virus in your home. You understand how to deal with it. Uh, You you isolate the person who has the virus. You stay in your room. You work through the virus. You don't get out of bed too soon. You don't infect the other people in the home. You don't return to work because then you'll have a relapse and you'll infect other people. Uh, There was a certain common sense to this. Uh, We didn't do any of that. And that's why the other countries have done so much better than we have. Uh, This virus was, uh, first, I believe, the administration just lied about it. Uh, They were in denial about it, uh, which I don't understand how that served their purposes. Uh, But then they used it as uh, another tool of division, right? Uh, This is an administration that's very good at dividing people. I think their political strategy goes back to the old strategy of divide and conquer. And uh, just like on issues of guns or women's rights or LGBTQ rights, uh, they took the virus as a, a wedge issue. And if you believed in the virus and if you wore a mask... Well, uh, then uh, you were giving in, then you were weak, uh, and then you were a progressive or a Democrat. Uh, And if you didn't believe in the virus and you wouldn't wear a mask, well, then you're a healthy, full-bodied American uh, who tells uh, the virus, come near me and I'll knock you on your uh, rear end. Uh, And that's what happened. And that's what is still happening, right? Uh, talk about not learning a lesson. That's been the lesson of the past seven months. Uh, and you see the phase we're in now, which was totally avoidable. You know, what happened in New York was different. Uh, that was the virus came here and we just missed it uh, out of incompetence and ignorance. That was one situation. This surge in these Western states that never had it in the first place, this is all man-made. This is our self-creation. This is just denial. This is uh, uh, states that believed there was no such thing as uh, COVID and they didn't have to take any precautions. And now you're seeing the spike because they were just flat out wrong. But this, is all, this was all unnecessary what we're going through now. And you see, in a lot of the countries, they've done much better than we have because they were smarter and they were more unified and they responded to the science. How you think politics is going to solve a virus is just beyond me. I mean, it was just 
such an inconceivably uh, ignorant and myopic uh, perspective uh, from the get-go, and it still is. Going back to to the beginning of your experience with this, and, and the book does a really compelling job of walking the reader through your experience. But can you can you speak to what it what it felt like at the beginning to become aware that that you had cases in New York and your discoveries about you know a lack of preparedness and a lack of engagement from the federal government? Yeah. It was a sustained period of shock, Scott, to tell you the truth. Uh, remember how it happens. We're sitting here in New York, and uh, the uh, COVID cases are few cases in California, few cases in the state of Washington in a nursing home. The president is saying China virus, China virus, China virus. Uh, Wuhan province, few cases reach the United States. We're over here on the East Coast, New York, and we're a little bit parochial here in New York. And we look at the West Coast, and that's, that's a far way away. But it was a West Coast issue, and it was a China issue. Uh, and China flights uh, going to California sort of made sense. Uh, but it was not a New York East Coast issue. Uh, what we had no idea about was that the China virus was not the China virus. The China virus was the European virus. The China virus was in China in December, January. The virus then got on a plane and went to Europe and mutated in Europe. And then people in Europe were arriving in New York and the East Coast and Chicago on flights January, February, March. The president loves to talk about, I did the China travel ban at the end of January. Yes, but by the time he did the China travel ban, it had left China. You closed the door after the horse was out of the barn. It was in Europe. They never knew it. Three million flights land here. And by the time we realize it, it was already throughout our society. Our doctors weren't diagnosing it because uh, it wasn't a live and present threat at the time. But January, February, March, it was seeding all through the Northeast. And then once it started, uh, all those cases uh, came to a peak uh, in a relatively short period of time. You know, uh, going back to your movie, uh, the virus goes from a wet market in China to the United States in just a couple of days, uh, transferred by one traveler, which makes sense, right? We have people in China all the time who are traveling everywhere. Uh, they're going to Europe, they're going to America, etc. How did you think the virus was going to still be in China Three months later, we don't do a European travel ban till March 16th. It was too late. Uh, you thought, still thought the virus was going to be sitting in China three months later. And then once it hit, I call it the ambush. Once we were ambushed, Scott, the numbers went off the charts in just a matter of days because the virus was here and it was transmitting 
and it was festering. Uh, and then once we acknowledged it and we started to diagnose for it, we had thousands of cases in a very short period of time. And it was a total state of surprise and shock. And I'd been in the federal government. I've been in state government. I was in the cabinet secretary for Bill Clinton at uh, Housing and Urban Development. Uh, I'm, I'm not a novice, but even I was shocked at the incompetence of the federal government, you know. We have the World Health Organization, we have the CDC, we have NIH, we have a whole alphabet soup of agencies who do just this, monitor global pandemics. And everybody missed it? Everybody? I mean, it was frightening. Yeah, you know, I I went to the CDC when I was doing research in, in 2010, I believe, and I felt really encouraged by how prepared people were there, how, you know, how they had resources, how they were engaged, how they had a plan. And and I I spoke to them extensively. So, you know, I guess I want to believe that the CDC is filled with good, hardworking scientists who who wanted to do their job. And it's still to me, um, and, and I saw this week that a thousand of them signed a letter saying that they had not been allowed to do their job and had not allowed to share information that could have saved lives. Um, you know, looking back, if you could design the appropriate federal government response, and I know that that you talk about that in the book, and in fact, include in the book a plan going forward, what would be the right way for the federal government to have responded to this? Well, look, first of all, uh, public health should be uh, isolated from political interference. I, it, it's, you know, you talk about the CDC now. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to attack the CDC. The results are damning for them, right? Uh, but what actually happened with them, nobody knows. Uh, did the president interfere politically to the point where they were not allowed to do their job? I don't know. Um, but first of all, that should never be possible. You have, these people are are all appointments by the president. The HHS secretary is a presidential appointment, uh, the CDC director, the public information officer at HHS, and CDC is under HHS, was a total political operative uh, trained by Roger Stone. And he was communicating. He was the mouthpiece for HHS and the CDC. Uh, they, they now uh, fired him for some reason or another. But uh, so who knows what they knew versus what they said or how much political interference. But that should just be impossible. Uh, this situation should not allow, have been allowed to exist where you have a president who we know was lying about it. Uh, that's the Woodward, Woodward book uh, and all the facts and circumstances, who made a purposeful decision that he didn't want to scare the American people by telling them the truth. Uh, so how much he muzzled them, we don't know. But even if you get past that, where was the operational capacity? Meaning, 
okay, so the CDC knows there's a virus in China. How do you stop it from coming here? We have no border control. You land at an airport. There are no health screenings. We don't have that apparatus. Uh, We didn't have any testing apparatus. We didn't have any contact tracing apparatus. We don't have a public health core where the federal government can uh, uh, turn around and send out a workforce that can help. There was no stockpile. There was no capacity to acquire a mask or a gown. I mean, when you think about it, it was just incompetent on every level. So uh, being able to detect the virus, yes, that's important, uh, which they didn't do. But once you detect it, how do you stop it from entering this country? And once it enters, which it inevitably will, no matter how good you are, at guarding the the front gate, how do you handle it? I mean, it's it was it was not even an incompetent response; it was a non-response. Yeah, I mean, again, from having having spent time researching this, any epidemiologist would tell you you test, trace, and isolate, and that that that's how you deal with these things. You know, in, in your book, you 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 speak about how slow and, you know, screwed up even the testing part of this became um, at the outset and how difficult that made it for you to form policy that could protect people. Do you want to talk about about testing and why it was so important and why, you know, even to this day, we really don't have a national testing program that includes tracing and isolation that works across the country? Yeah. No, Scott, I'm sure you're right. They, I'm sure they have a manual somewhere that says early detection. And then once you detect it, uh, try to stop it at the border. But we really don't have that under control. Uh, and then once it's here, test, trace and isolate. Yes, I'm sure they have a manual that says that. Uh, there's a caveat uh, somewhere in that manual, page 57. By the way, We can't test, trace, and isolate. You know, that's the problem with the test, trace, and isolate plan. Uh, Testing, when it first started, the federal government was in charge of testing. When it first started, the federal government was very aggressive about maintaining control. Uh, So they wanted to do all the tests. So the state would get the sample, send it to the CDC. The CDC would send it to their lab in uh, Alabama, I believe it was, uh, or Georgia, and they would take several days to process it, send it back to the CDC. Very slow, very uh, time-consuming. And that was the bottleneck on testing. And they had no capacity to do large-scale testing. Um, Eventually, the states started testing also and were allowed to test. But even the states had very limited testing capacity because it's not what states do. Uh, Tracing, that concept is in the manual. It had never been done on anywhere near this scale. Uh, We had to hire and train 15,000 contact tracers. I mean, it just didn't exist. 
uh, isolate, yeah, where and how and by what legal authority uh, do you isolate? We haven't quarantined people uh, in this nation in modern history where government has said, you, Scott, must uh, go to an isolation facility and you must stay there until we release you. Uh, government just doesn't, hasn't done that. Uh, and the legal authority uh, would generate all sorts of lawsuits. So to the extent they had a conceptual plan, it was just the sketch framework and nowhere near deployable and nowhere near scale. Every state was left to its own. You just take testing, not to get hypergranular. But when the federal government says, okay, states, you can test because they're now overwhelmed, we have a state laboratory that the state controls. Some states don't have a state lab. We have a state laboratory. Uh, I bring in the laboratory, maximum capacity, 500 tests per day, maximum opening all the spigots, making everything happen, 500 tests a day. That was the maximum capacity. We then have in this state private laboratories, 300 private laboratories, but they're purely private. Uh, and they work with hospitals when a hospital needs a blood test or whatever. Uh, in this state, what we did is we basically, by emergency order, uh, said to those 300 private laboratories, you must prioritize COVID testing. Uh, and we passed an emergency law to that effect, which had never been done before. You know, you're going to a private lab that uh, the state government uh, just has a modicum of regulatory control over, and you're basically taking over their operation. Uh, after all was said and done, we now are up to about 100,000 tests per day, 100,000, from 500 tests per day. We test more than any state in the United States pro rata. We test more than any country on the globe pro rata because I believe testing is the only factual basis to deal with this. Uh, and then we've been very aggressive on the contact tracing off the testing. And we've been very aggressive in the quarantine and the restrictions and the close down. Uh, but it's all been a case of first impression. Uh, many states uh, saw this as uh, first. Many states just believed the president. This is a hoax. Don't worry about it. It's gone by April. Um, it, it's un-American to be afraid of the virus. Uh, and then many states either didn't have the testing capacity or didn't want to develop the testing capacity. Uh, the president's political theory is, if you don't test, you won't identify the cases. And if you don't identify the cases, nobody will know that you have them. You know, by that theory... Uh, the police shouldn't arrest anyone. And if they don't arrest anyone, I won't have any crime in the state of New York. We'll be a crime-free state. 
because the police never <laughs> arrested anyone. On that theory, don't take a test and you don't have COVID. Uh, feel good, be happy. Uh, so, uh, and, and that, unfortunately, for many, many states and many people uh, believe that. Yeah, one of, so in the face of this, at some point, you decided to start doing these daily briefings and, and they formed sort of the structure of the book. And I just want to read something um, that sort of informed your decision to do that. Uh, this again from the book. A single day's briefing means little. The constant reinforcement and updated factual data could present a story that the public could follow. Besides, matters of life and death tend to get people's attention. The main challenge for me was to communicate this data to the public in a way that would establish my credibility for, for, for providing timely information with transparency while also instilling confidence. My daughter Mariah said to me <clears throat> late the previous night, her voice clearly filled with anxiety, don't tell me to relax, tell me why I should be relaxed. She was right. Um, can you talk about your decision to, to start doing these daily briefings and and where that came from? Uh, yes, yeah, Scott, it was, it evolved more than anything. You know, first of all, I was doing briefings as governor uh, and they were very regular for me. And that same format was regular for me. Now, normally nobody pays attention to them because who really cares what the state government in New York is doing on, an, on a daily basis. Uh, but uh, I, I felt instinctively the fear that was building. Uh, and for me, uh, I, in my federal experience and as governor, I've handled a lot of emergencies, floods, earthquakes, etc. When I was in the federal government as HUD secretary, I did all the federal uh, emergency work, not just in New York, but uh, around the world. And in a, an emergency situation, and I don't care what it is, uh, flood, hurricane, the real enemy is panic. You can deal with a hurricane. You can't deal with a panicked population. I have seen uh, civilization uh, break down very quickly. You uh, tell people that uh, their life is in danger or their children's life is in danger uh, they will trample each other trying to get to safety. So that's, that's really what you have to protect against, uh, panic and chaos and frenzy. And I, I had that built in from my past experience. Uh, I also uh, felt instinctively people were starved for information. You're living a science fiction movie. What is going on? You hear all this nonsense on TV. Everybody has a different opinion. And then, yes, you start to run into this political divide that the red news station says this and the blue news station says this. And this is no time for politics. Just give me the straight information. I need to know what to do to protect myself and to protect my children. So I wanted to do the briefings to, to fill that void. Uh, here's the information. It's not Democratic information, Republican information. It's just, there are still facts in life, right? Two plus two still equals four. 
I don't care if you're a conservative or a liberal, two plus two equals four. Here are the facts. These are straight facts. I'm not going to spin it. I'm not coloring it. Uh, I'm not communicating as a politician who has an opinion. Here are the facts. If you want the information, here's the information. Uh, Also, from that information, here is our program that I believe is going to handle this. And it's thought through. And let me tell you how it's thought through. Take a deep breath. uh, And I hope you will believe this program is responsive to the problem. Uh, And then I would add what I called my personal opinion, saying, okay, now here's my uh, uh, personal opinion, political opinion, call it whatever you want to call it, uh, on what's going on. I had no idea they would explode to the level they did in terms of viewership. You know, we had 64 million people watching. People from all around the world were watching, which I still don't understand because they were always New York specific, right? They were New York facts. But I think it was just... Uh, a snapshot for people of what the virus was doing and how to handle it. Um, but it, it's what people desperately needed at that moment. Well, and, and it's pretty clear in reading the book that sometimes the audience was actually one person um, because you realize, and I, I think it's it's one of the parts of the book that I think is very important for people to understand that there was sort of an evolution in your strategy of dealing with the White House, that initially there was, you know, as you learned the Javits Center, that even saying thank you could be taken and misconstrued and that there might be a different way of responding to the president and that criticism might even be more effective than, than massaging his ego. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, this, uh, with this president, and I knew the president from New York, uh, there was nothing besides public relations with the president and the White House. I never had a substantive conversation with anyone that wasn't about the public relations. Uh, It was incredible. And the most effective communication for me was what I said on television, because that's all they cared about. Uh, It wasn't about the infection rate, really. It wasn't about the death rate, really. It wasn't about what we needed. It was the optics of the situation, which... I had to get my head around, but once I got my head around it uh, and understood that's what was uh, driving them and that's what they reacted to, the briefings, you're right, were uh, there was always an audience of one that was probably the most significant uh, audience because he would gauge his response by what I said. Uh, He wanted affirmation, uh, always desperate need for affirmation. And I tried to be a good partner and be gracious. The president would constantly refer to uh, how gracious 
uh, I was. I should be more gracious. You're not gracious enough. As if anything the federal government did was a personal gift or personal largesse. Uh, I sent, he sent in the military to uh, build uh, an emergency shelter. I should be grateful and express my gratitude. No, you're doing your job. That's your job, right? But be it as it may, the flip side of the gratitude was uh, he couldn't take any criticism. He really uh, hated any criticism. So between the expression of gratitude uh, and the uh, expression of criticism, which I always believe was fact-based, you know, and I used to say to him uh, multiple times, when you actually perform your role as president and help, I'll say it. Uh, When you are uh, uh, negligent in your duty, I'm going to say that too. You know, the, the truth matters here. Uh, But there's no doubt that the entire interaction was about the optics of it. And when you when you now look back, Scott, uh, it's even more clear that this was all a manipulation by him. He did know about the virus. He did know how bad it was going to be. And he lied about it on some theory that uh, if he told people how bad it was, they couldn't handle it, or maybe he couldn't handle it, frankly. Uh, and it's consistent. So deny it and then don't test, because if you test, you will prove it. When the test started to show it, he told states to take fewer tests. You have states now that take fewer tests than they were taking. How is that even possible? Right? Building the testing capacity is iterative. Uh, and you build on it. They have purposely stopped taking tests. Uh, I mean, it really is incredible that not only did they not fo- follow the science, they defy science and they defy medicine. And people die. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that you also lay out on the book that that I find really compelling is even as a political strategy, there was a different version of this. You know, he has made the observation that he will win or lose reelection based on the economy. And yet this was a crisis where he could have used it to stand up and and unify people Um and it's interesting that he tacked purposefully, like you say, away from that. Do you want to speak to, you know, even from an inside baseball political standpoint, what might have been, you know, a successful way to engage with this pandemic? Well, that's, uh, that is still fascinating and just shows his limitation. Uh, he's going to win re-election on the economy. That is the normal predictor. And I'm sure that's what his uh, political advisors said to him. And if you look back, uh, an incumbent tends to win when the economy is strong. And there's actually indicators that say if the economy is above X, the incumbent wins. Yes, that's normally true. Uh, and that's, that was his MO. So when the virus comes along, 
He's afraid it's going to hurt the economy, which would then hurt his reelection chances. Uh, and that then takes him to the strategy of deny the virus and maybe it won't hurt the economy. That's why he was against the states closing down the economy. And he would say in his paranoid state, the states are closing down to hurt my reelection because if they close down, it will hurt the economy and that hurts me. Right. It was all about him. Yeah, that the barometer of the economy in an incumbent is normally true. But there's another barometer called leadership, called character, called just doing the job required to be done at the time. If the president had looked at COVID and actually dealt with it and stepped up and said, things have changed. I know we had this great economic trajectory, but now we have a global pandemic. We're going to handle it. We're going to handle it together. We're going to come together as a country. There's nothing we can't do. We're the greatest country on the world. I believe it would have ensured his reelection. I believe he would be on a glide path to victory if he had stood up and actually managed the COVID pandemic. And you know what? If he did manage the COVID pandemic and he had saved lives, then he should have been reelected. Uh, yeah, look, I don't agree with him on anything, but the American people would have reelected him if he handled this well. Uh, the cruel irony is, once the virus hit, the economy was going to be in trouble anyway. And anyone should have been able to tell him that. Uh, and he, he was so derelict in what he did. I said today, uh, he is the number one super spreader. He is patient zero. When you think about it, he brought the virus to this country. He wasn't on the plane. But from the beginning, when he said it was the China virus and missed that it was coming from Europe, when he lied about it, when he had the White House Navarro memo and he lied about it, when he told Americans don't wear a mask, he is the super spreader, not just in the Rose Garden, uh, at the last uh, ceremony where 30-whatever people got sick. No, he was the super spreader from day one. He really was. And 200,000 lives? And unnecessary. Unnecessary. That's what, that's what kills me. You know, I... Dealing with death is... Uh, so hard on so many levels. I set a goal for New Yorkers. I said, look, people are going to die, and that's hard to take. But let's make sure that we don't lose a life that we could have saved, that we did everything we could for every person who got sick. And then God takes the rest. I was afraid of turning into Italy, where the healthcare system becomes overwhelmed, which, by the way, is what you hear on some Western states now. They don't have 
ICU beds, they're overwhelmed. That's the real fear with this virus. You overwhelm your healthcare system. Uh, and we never did. We had an initial projection, Scott, that we needed 110 to 140,000 hospital beds. That's what they told me early on when they realized that the infection, the infection had come from Europe, which, by the way, Dr. Fauci and the CDC both testified to Congress that that's where it came from. 110 to 140,000 hospital beds, that's how many people would get infected. We only have 50,000 hospital beds. They tell you you need 110,000. You only have 50,000 hospital beds. You can't create hospital beds overnight. Uh, That is a frightening, frightening reality. And the only way we avoided that was being so aggressive in reducing, flattening the curve, reducing the spread, that we know where we, we never got anywhere near that infection rate. But he was, and he is, patient zero. We have um, a lot of questions, so uh, I'm going to try and get through as many of these as possible. Um, what do you think we should do regarding opening schools? Stay virtual, hybrid, open all? Depends how you do it and how good you are at doing it. Uh, we, what we're doing in New York is uh, we have 700 school districts. We have a plan from each school district. We approve the basic parameters of the plan. Uh, we have all models operating, hybrid, uh, in-school, remote. Our in-school which is obviously uh, poses uh, potential dangers. We are very rigorous about testing. And I keep talking about testing because those are the only facts you have. And we test teachers and students. Uh, We test them on a weekly basis. If we see an uptick in the numbers, then close the in-school testing. Uh, If you don't see an uptick, then you're okay. Right now, we did about 10,000 tests of students and teachers, uh, and we only had about 18 positives out of 10,000. Okay, if that's where it stays, then it's safe to have children in school. Uh, If that changes, then we'll, we'll react. But to me, there's no... There's very little theory or concept in this, right? This is all operational and practical and science and data, and you can test. So in school, if it is safe, how do I know if it's safe? Test to see if anyone gets the virus. And if you're doing enough tests, you will know. Uh, And that's what we're doing. Um, just background for this question, you know, right now, the positivity rate in New York is 1.1%. Just by contrast, the positivity rate in Florida is 12%. Um, this question is, after recovering as the COVID-19 hotspot, what are you doing now that has helped the low numbers of infection in your state? We, we are, uh, First, we are 
more honest, I think, about the virus. Uh, we've talked through the political divisions, and I had the protests, and I had Liberate New York, and uh, that whole Trumpian theory. Uh, and I've talked to New Yorkers and communicated and argued and debated. Uh, and I think we've tamped down, probably better than most states, that political opposition. Uh, it's still there, but it's, it's much lower in this state. Uh, second, when most states test and have a statewide infection rate, right? You just gave the Florida statewide infection rate. Some states are more sophisticated and have enough testing where they look at a regional level. Uh, we do so much testing that we can get it down to the neighborhood level, Scott. And when we see an outbreak in a neighborhood, we pounce on it. We literally respond to things uh, like a Sweet 16 party on Long Island that had too many people and generated cases, uh, a bar in an upstate county, and a funeral in an upstate county that's generating cases. We get it to that granular level, and then we're very disciplined about uh, running to the ember and stamping it out. Uh, we have uh, those... Uh, what we call microclusters, those neighborhood-based infection zones, are very small. They can be one square mile. And we impose the restrictions, and uh, we send in the testing, etc., but on a very aggressive level. The infection rate in what I call a hotspot is lower than what most states have statewide, Right? So it becomes relative. Uh, 1% is incredibly low, uh, absurdly low. Uh, one of the lowest uh, in the nation. Uh, only Maine has a lower infection rate today than, uh, uh, than 1%. Uh, but we're rigorous about anything, any uh, flare-up at all. We are very quick to act. Now, politically, that's not easy because when you impose those restrictions, the community gets upset. Everybody has COVID fatigue. Nobody wants to go back to close down or restrictions. But it's the only way. It is the only way to do it. Yeah, I think one of the things, unfortunately, that, that people have been led to believe here is that we have a choice of we either have to close down and get healthy that way, or we open up. And it's not, you know, as your book points out, that's a false choice. And that, in fact, we need to get our economy healthy by defeating this virus, not instead of defeating the virus. Um, there's a, an interesting question here. How did you and your office deal with people who don't believe the science? You have to follow the law anyway. I don't, <laughs> that's how it works, that's how it works. Uh, it doesn't, you don't get to pick and choose the laws that you follow. Uh, it doesn't work that way. I don't believe in the seatbelt law. 
I believe it's a, a hyperextension of government control. Okay, you have to wear the seatbelt anyway. I believe I can text and drive. Yeah, okay. Uh, I don't believe I should wear a helmet when I ride a motorcycle. A lot of states don't require it. I don't believe, I believe it's uh, an overreach by government to tell me to wear a helmet. Okay, uh, wear a helmet or you get a ticket. Uh, you know, in a situation like this, you have to be willing to protect the public in matters of public health by enforcing the law. And it, does it get blowback? Yes. And is it hard for the political system? Yes. Because politicians do not like to make people unhappy. A lot of people don't like to make people unhappy, but especially politicians. Uh, so politicians don't like to do the enforcement. What I say in New York State is, okay, you don't have to do the enforcement, mayor, county executive, county supervisor. I'll do the enforcement. No problem. Blame me. I said that from day one. Blame me. You don't believe in masks. I'm sorry. You still have to wear a mask. Um, I'm not sure if this question is actually for you or for me. What do you do to cope with your mental health? What specifically do you recommend that should be done to prepare for the next wave so we can match Taiwan's results? Why don't you take that one? Why don't one? you take that one? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my mental health was actually greatly helped by your briefings. Um, and I think I speak for a lot of people that it was an amazing, you know, thing to be able to turn on the TV in, in sort of this festival of misinformation that we found ourselves in. And, and hear somebody speak the way that you did and provide leadership um, that was fact-based, that was realistic and reassuring at the same time. Um, as, in terms of what specifically uh, do we have to do to prepare, um, I think we have to do more of the same. You know, we have to stand up really strong testing, tracing, and isolation programs. And as you said, these things need to both be nationwide, but you know we need to be able to tailor them to the hotspots when they appear. Um, so how did I do? Good, good. Uh, <laughs> I believe it. The uh, Going forward, through the fall, you're going to have these increased spikes. The states that manage the spikes better will have a lower infection rate. Uh, the states... Uh, that are in denial will see the infection rate go up all through the fall. Um, I believe uh, we'll be seeing flare-ups in New York. We run, we tamp it down, we run, we tamp it down. That's the fall. Uh, we get into the winter, they're going to start to talk about vaccines. Vaccines are going to be a debacle, a debacle, because we learned nothing from the past seven months and the way testing was a debacle and still is, vaccines will be a debacle on steroids. Uh, think about this. For seven months, doing everything we could do to do testing. In this state, I did 13 million tests. Vaccines. 
I have to administer 40 million vaccinations. I did 13 million tests in seven months. How long is it going to take me to do 40 million vaccinations? Uh, how hard is it going to be to communicate to the American people this is a safe vaccine? Trust it. CDC says it's safe. President Trump stood up in the Rose Garden and said it's safe. Let me put the needle in your arm. Also, you have an added complexity. There's going to be a rolling series of vaccines. This week, uh, Eli Lilly comes out with a vaccine. It's two dosages. You have to get two shots 21 days apart. Uh, next week, there's the Moderna vaccine. Some people say that one's better. Uh, two weeks from now is going to be the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's only one shot. Some people say that's better. There's going to be confusion on top of skepticism, on top of uh, an operational nightmare that no one is planning for, no one is talking about, and we're only weeks away. Government has not taken on a massive logistical operation like this since World War II. Uh, one, the nationwide, over seven months, we've done 128 million tests. And remember, a test is nasal swab uh, and uh, then have it sent to a lab. Uh, we've done 128 million. Vaccinations, you need 328 million, twice. And a vaccination is, let me put a needle in your arm and inject an unknown substance. That is going to be uh, a major undertaking. And the White House is going to stand up and say, here's the vial. We discovered a vaccine. We're done. And you won't have a resolution for nine months, 10 months, a year after that. And for people here who have maybe heard talk of herd immunity as, as a way through this, in my experience, and, and again, talking to experts in public health, there is no herd immunity strategy without a vaccine. And in fact, to say that you're going to pursue herd immunity by getting people sick is basically saying that it's okay for somewhere around 200 million people in this country to get sick. And if at 8 million, we've already seen 200,000 dead, that's basically acquiescing to the idea that three or four million people might die. Am I wrong in my understanding of herd immunity without a vaccine? Yes, you just say it with more numbers and more diplomacy than I say it. You can have herd immunity. You just have to be willing to let a lot of people die. <laughs> then you can have herd immunity, right? Herd immunity, we have about 20% of New Yorkers uh, have been infected. You want to say you have to get to 55%? All right, so then just let the virus spread two and a half times the number of people who are now infected, and you'll have herd immunity, and you will have had tens of thousands of people die, and that's herd immunity. It's absurd. It's just an absurd uh, uh, concept uh, without a vaccine, obviously. Um, I want to get back to one of the questions here. This is 
probably going to be our last one. Um, Governor, what would your message be to so many Americans who have lost and are losing loved ones and being dismissed by a president who says it is what it is? I have spoken to so many, so many wives and husbands and fathers who have lost people through this. Uh, his dismissiveness uh, is is so uh, insensitive to what's going on, I think. And you have to remember, Scott, how these people died. They were in a hospital, nurses, doctors, so much PPE on that you can't see a face. So in New York anyway, they went to wearing nameplates where we attached pictures of the person. So the patient could at least see a face. You have no loved ones are allowed in. Uh, it's a frightening. I've been in those ERs. It is just frightening. It's a sea of plastic and gowns and masks. I mean, this has been a horrific, horrific experience. Uh, and people ask, why? You know, why? which is always a question. But in this situation, it's been especially uh, nonsensical and irrational and almost unnecessary, uh, which makes their grieving process even worse, right? Uh, someone dies for political reasons uh, because the president was playing politics, because government was incompetent. It's very, very, it's very, very tough. What I say to people is, look, uh, the answer is only God knows. God created the virus, uh, and only God knows. You want to speculate about if we had done this, if we had done that, who knows? Uh, we have faith and we have prayer uh, to fall back on, but it is hard, and I don't have the answer. Scott, I wish I did, because I've had too many conversations uh, where I just didn't have the answer. But I do have my faith, and it's been very helpful to me. Someone asked about the mental health. Look, this questions who we are and what we believe uh, fundamentally. The stress of this situation, the emotional stress, the number of people who are going to have PTSD after this is over, we don't even tend to uh, un uh, understand. Uh, we're going to have to go through a whole vaccine process before this is over. It's going to go on another nine months, another year. You pick it. This is going to be a life-changing, historic situation. It's going to be like World War II, like the 1918 pandemic. Uh, how do you live with uncertainty and death? Uh, and put your life on hold for years. It's going to change this nation. I believe it. Let's just hope we learn from it. You know, in your book, you actually provided something that, that certainly helped my mental health. And I'd love to, to close with you talking about when you called for volunteers to, to get involved. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to, to have you tell people what the response was from people in New York. You know, Scott, 
the we've talked a lot about the negative, the politics of it, the incompetence of it. Uh, the inspiration is God bless the people of this country. God bless the essential goodness in people and the essential courage of people. Uh, and the two situations that st- stick out for me. First, I was communicating two messages. <clears throat> One message was, look how dangerous this is. You have to stay home. Please stay home. Please stay home. Please stay home. Second message in the next breath, essential workers, you have to go to work. Everybody stay home, but not you, essential workers. You have to show up tomorrow. You nurses, you doctors, you bus drivers, you utility workers, you for, uh, food store clerks. You have to show up tomorrow. You have to put your life in danger in the middle of this pandemic so we are all safe as a society. And they all did it. They all did it. Essential workers, Scott, these are not the millionaires and the billionaires and the high-priced real estate developers and lawyers. These are the blue-collar workers who showed up every day so people could stay home. You want to talk about just grit and courage. And they drove the New York City subways. And they drove the ambulances and picked up the gurney with the person with COVID in the gurney. Uh, And they never flinched. And by the way, had they flinched, then you would have seen chaos. You want to see society come apart. There's no food on the shelves. Uh, You turn on the light, the lights don't come on. The telephone doesn't work. Uh, That's chaos, my friend. So the essential workers were so inspiring to me. And whenever I felt, woe is me, uh, forget woe is me. What was I doing? I was sitting on my tuchus uh, talking to people. Uh, police are out there. Firefighters are out there. Uh, everybody's doing really tough stuff and subjecting themselves to dangerous situations. Uh, who am I? And the point you referred to, I said in one briefing, just one briefing, I said, we need volunteer nurses and doctors who can come help because the emergency rooms are overwhelmed and the nurses and doctors are collapsing. That's all I said. And then I said, if your license expired as a nurse or a doctor in New York State, we will renew your license if you come back. We had... 80,000 people volunteer, 30,000 people from out of state, nurses and doctors volunteer to say they would come work in a New York emergency room at the height of the pandemic. 30,000 from out of state, 50,000 in state, 80,000 people. How incredible. Who is that courageous and that generous and that beautiful that they would come to the most dangerous place and do that for no reason besides they were asked. 
I mean, God bless our people, our humanity, our goodness, our courage. And that's what makes America, America, not these politicians and this garbage. It's always been about the people. And they are that good and they are that strong and they are that smart and resourceful. And that's what's going to see us through all of this. Despite the dummy politicians and everything else, it's going to be the people who get us through. And that's always the answer. Thank you, Governor. I think that's all we have time for, but I want to thank Governor Cuomo for spending the time with us. And uh, please get the book, American Crisis Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. I'm Scott Z. Burns, and thank you all for your time today. Again, thank you, Governor Cuomo. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Commonwealth Club. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.